The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 175 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed in this show are my own, that that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during this show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at the very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Last week, we had Vice President of Government and Public Affairs at Cox Communications, Neka Chiazor, she joined me on episode 174 to share her passion of empowering women who are experiencing what she calls hope outages. Neka also discussed the impact of constant communications during the pandemic and the negative impact on psychological well-being and how we've added psychological safety to corporate business continuity plans. We finished up the show discussing diversity and inclusion in cybersecurity and scratched the surface on neurodiversity. All this and much, much more at episode number 174 of Task Force 7 Radio. If you missed last week's episode, folks, don't sweat it. We're on at least 11 different playback mediums. You can find us everywhere, folks. That's Empowering Women Who Are Experiencing Hope Outages on last week's episode. That's episode number 174 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, folks, I'm excited to have tonight's guest join me on the show. I've actually worked for this person during my time at Verizon. Excited to have him here. We have the co-chair of of New York University Center for Cybersecurity and the former Executive Vice President of Verizon Communications, Mr. Randy Milch, on the show tonight. Randy Milch is the co-chair of NYU Center for Cybersecurity, a distinguished fellow at the Reese Center of School and Law and Security, and a professor of practice at NYU School of Law. He serves as the faculty co-director of MS in Cybersecurity Risk and Strategy Program. Prior to coming to NYU, Randy was the general counsel and head of public policy at Verizon Communications. At Verizon, Randy chaired the Verizon Executive Security Council, which oversaw information security across all of Verizon entities. Randy was responsible for national security matters at Verizon beginning in 2006 and has served as a senior cleared executive at Verizon. Earlier in his career, Randy was a partner in the Washington, D.C. office of Donovan, Leisure, Newton, and Irvine. He holds a JD from New York University School of Law and a BA from Yale University. It's my pleasure to introduce co-chair of the NYU Center for Cybersecurity, Mr. Randy Milch. Randy, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Andy, thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here with you. Man, I'm so excited to have you here, Randy. I mean, look, when I worked for you underneath you at Verizon, man, it was, we had a lot of fun. We were doing a lot of cool things. So what, what brought you out of the mothership of Verizon and telecommunications to back to NYU? Well, Andy, we did. <laughs> it was a great 
I, I like to say everything I know about cybersecurity, I learned from folks like you at Verizon uh, years ago before cyber was sexy. Um, and uh, what led me out of Verizon was I, I sort of aged out, you know, I mean, uh, I was I, I had been the general counsel head of public policy for 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 long enough. There were people ready to go. And uh, I figured it was time for me to time for me to move on. And um, uh, going into academia to the extent I call myself a little bit of a fake academic, you know, um, because I don't have the Ph.D. and I don't I don't write. Uh, papers that no one reads. Uh, but uh, I guess what lured me back was this notion that um, the cybersecurity crisis um, that was obvious even, you know, seven, five or seven years ago when I left, I guess, six years ago when I left, uh, needed to be solved a little bit by bringing together uh, technology and policy and law in one place as opposed to having separate silos. So that's what I sort of went back to do was to um, uh, try to bring those strands together uh, at NYU. And, yeah, the, um, you know, it's been a, it's been quite a ride, let me tell you. Yeah, that, that's fantastic. I mean, look, you're hitting the nail right on the head. I mean, how many times do we see we walk onto the hill and have to educate you know, members of Congress, and then there's a new new, new administration, and you're re-educating. You know, and, or you're you're trying to take the teams within in the network and trying to get them to, you know, translate. You know, network to legal, legal to network, uh, constantly. So, you know, training a workforce in you know in that silo breaking environment is really really cool. So. What, what's top of mind for you, you know, right now as the co-chair of the, of the cyber, you know, the cybersecurity center? I mean, you got the pandemic going on. Like how, how has the pandemic changed how you've had to educate, you know, professionals at this point? Oh, it's so the pandemic's been quite a, you know, it's it, listen, it's been a kick in the head for everybody. Um, uh, you know, the 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 professors, the teaching workforce sort of went went seamlessly into teaching distantly. Um, uh, and we're lucky enough um, at the law school level uh, and at the professional level where we, you know, we do a lot of our coursework to have a student body that is mature enough and capable of you know, studying and, and applying themselves even in a distance learning session. Uh, segment. Um, but uh, it's so we're luck, very lucky in that way. You know, the pandemic was less disruptive in some respects than uh, it was for uh, folks who have little kids. And, uh, you know, and my daughter's a fourth grade teacher. So I know and she's been teaching in person for the last year. So I know very well the, the travails of teaching um, uh, in COVID. But the you know it's interesting because it's a case study it's a cybersecurity case study to all of a sudden move um, yeah. any business entirely online uh, and um, you know you it's it's a teaching moment it's a teaching moment to see how people reacted and all of the issues that we face when we face cybersecurity in a business you know how from from the very beginning what's your budget for dealing with the problem all of a sudden was replicated in a really short time period 
as people moved their businesses uh, online. So it's been a fascinating uh, thing to talk about uh, and to write about a little bit, um, uh, to, 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 to look at uh, uh, teaching in a pandemic as just sort of a case study for cybersecurity problems writ large. Yeah, it's a really interesting perspective. I mean, look, I, you know, we, everyone, everyone at the CISO level is experiencing, right? Your corporate network is no longer your corporate network. Right, and you got to re- redo it. So yeah, really interesting challenge has been fun to kind of you know lead uh, cybersecurity teams through through in companies through this time. So so Randy, listen, you were at the forefront at the table, you know, within telecommunications as Verizon was going from you know a telecommunications company to a technology company. You've seen you know the regulatory landscape. You were helped driving the regulatory landscape in different ways. But the one thing that I think came kept coming up when I was there and I'd love to get your take on it, is that, you know, the internet is the battleground for the cyber war, right? And that war is fought on the telecommunications infrastructure. And unlike other countries, our battleground is privately owned. Right. Right. And, you know, what was it like for you to have to navigate, you know, as Verizon's top national security lawyer, the gray area between nation state attacks versus espionage? And potentially that you know the your infrastructure being that battleground. Yeah, well, it's quite a it's 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 a great point. You know, people don't. I think Andy, your, your recognition of that and the thing that we the things that we always dealt with, uh, and and explaining to folks how different our our private investment structure and our legal structure is here versus uh, the rest of the world has always been a fascinating and tough subject to to navigate with the with with the hill and with uh, the with the administration whoever the administration is um, you know it's the distinction between the, the the further distinction between what is espionage and what is potentially some sort of act of war is also a fascinating and important topic I remember, just after the new administration, the current new administration came in, uh, and the you know all of the all of the solar wind stuff happened, uh, and people were at the initially banging the drum that this was an act of war. And I, I have an old buddy who reached out to me who just came into the administration, and he reached out as very early in the morning with a text saying, "What's going? You know, should we think about it this way?" You know, and my advice on solar winds was exactly contrary that it was an act of war. Um, it was a very surgical, careful uh, uh, espionage uh, effort as best we can tell, as best that I know from the public sources. And, you know, uh, there's, there's a strong notion that this sort of espionage is not a wartime act. Uh, I think that these are complicated issues that need a, a calm uh, view of what's going on uh, at all times. And I'm not suggesting that the, you know, the administration, this administration, or even the last administration, uh, at least in the cybersecurity realm, was, was other than a calm viewer of this problem. But uh, it's, it's, it's difficult to reconcile uh, the popular way of looking at it and popular calls for we have to do something, it's an act of war, uh, whatever cyber attack you're talking about with uh, the realities of, uh, of, of, of responsible ways to deal with um, cyber, cyber uh, incursions. 
I guess is the right way to put it, cyber incursions into our networks here, right? We, you're right, they're, they're privately owned. Um, the relationship with the government is very, very hard to navigate and very important to navigate in, a, in, in, in requiring people to turn square corners because once you give up those square corners, um, a crisis, pass, crisis passes and uh, you're, you find yourself in a way of doing things that you're not happy with when the crisis is over. So it's very important to keep a steady and firm hand, both from the public perspective and from the private perspective as we face these things. Yeah, so so interesting. So look, espionage is just a rule, a way of life, right? And we know it. Do, do you feel like at some level, countries spying on countries, you know, actually prevents war? Oh, I, I definitely do. I think that there's a, you know, there's a very strong argument to be made, I think, that um, uh, espionage is a little bit of espionage in peacetime. Let's put it that way. Espionage in peacetime is a is a very important uh, uh, pressure reducer, right? You have a much better idea about what your um, your enemy, for lack of a better word, or your or, or, or your or your antagonist, if it's a little bit less uh, problematic, what their intentions are, what their capabilities are, what they're thinking about. Um, you know, and, and so there are all sorts of uh, reasons to believe that espionage is an appropriate thing, but even short of espionage, you know, one of the sort of theoretical propositions that came about in the last four or five years was this notion of sort of, of, of that the U S government at least should be, uh, advanced in its placement on opponent networks to have a better idea about what their, intentions were straightforwardly from a cyber um, a, a cyber warfare perspective, right? What is our early warning system that something is not espionage and making that distinction between, um, you know, shutting off a water system uh, and uh, uh, finding out what government emails are, right? Those are two very different types of things. So, uh, you know, the old rule was once you're no longer on your own network, you're in current, you're, 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 you're actually doing something on someone else's network. That's sort of a big dividing line about, about whether you're being active or defensive and um, having forward placement on adversary networks is a, is an important idea about um, uh, putting our own, you know, it's basically enforcing our national internet border somewhere uh, outside of domestic networks and onto to international networks. I, I think that it's an important thing and I'm assuming and hoping Andy that we're doing a boatload of it as well, right? We're, we're, not, we're not behind on this sort of- uh, Sitting back that's, waiting, right? <laughs> exactly, we're, 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 we're spying on the other folks. Uh, I hope at least if not much more than, than they're spying on us. Yeah. Listen, I've got so much I want to dive in here. So, all right, folks, we're going to take a commercial break. So, hey, if you're a social media junkie, don't forget to follow TF7 Radio on your favorite social media platform. Follow us on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook, and even Instagram by searching at TF7 Radio, and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George, email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7. That's with number seven, folks, radio.com. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, then we'll be right back with co-chair of the NYU Center for Cybersecurity, 
Mr. Randy Milch. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 hacker innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. With forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at Secure security-innovation.org or google signet s-i-n-e-t in today's interconnected world digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work live and communicate in business staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with co-chair of the NYU Center for Cybersecurity, Mr. Randy Milch. So, Randy, I got to ask you, you're sitting up there, Basking Ridge, right? And the National Guard shows up at the front door at Verizon and says, I want to get on the keyboard and help fight the good cyber fight. What's what's, what's the reaction? Where do we go from there? Oh, God, it's a bad day at Basking Ridge. (laughs) Uh, uh, (laughs) So it was always one of my nightmares, you know, would be that 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 some helpful person from the government was going to show up and uh, want to put fingers on keyboards. Um, uh, the 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 answer is 
The answer is, in almost any scenario that I can imagine, the answer is no, a very respectful and thankful no. Um, you know, you have to maintain a good relationship uh, with the folks who are leading this fight from the government. And that includes any, you know, the, any, the, any of the uniform folks, the National Guard's been doing great work uh, in a lot of places. Um, and this is no ding on them, but um, I don't want anyone but Verizon fingers on Verizon keyboards. At least that would have been my position when I was back, back in my old job. Um, you, you know, no one knows our network like we know our network. No one knows the network like the private folks who run their networks. Uh, there's always uh, very useful information that can be gleaned from uh, government folks, uh, threat indicators and uh, signatures and the like. Uh, and you need that good relationship to be able to ingest uh, classified information if it's classified to, to do that. And there were instances certainly where we were notified by uh, parts of the government, uh, whether it was, you know, uh, DOD, DOJ, or or the Secret Service, uh, you know, you know this, Andy, where you you had those you, you were you had those relationships. So um, that's a really critical set of relationships to have. But uh, in my view, uh, private fingers are on private keyboards, uh, not public fingers. Yeah, love it. So look, Randy, breaches aren't slowing down. Litigation is going up. Right. Like there's no shortage of the fear of liability in this space. Um, information gets shared, gets limited really quickly once attorneys get involved. Right. As, as you as you know, and that's by design. So, you know, when I look at different IR plans or incident response plans for companies, right, they, they lead right to the general counsel. So a decision on privilege can be made. Are we going to hire external forensic investigators? Is that going to be bundled under privilege? How do we limit, you know, what we talk about, who talks about it, et cetera. Um, and, and you posted on LinkedIn, which I thought was really, really fascinating to want to talk to you about, which was, you know, we need Congress to enact a post-breach cybersecurity privilege to replace the work product in attorney-client privileges. Would you mind just kind of sharing with the audience, like first, you know, what's, what's attorney-client privilege in like the highest sense, right? And then what would a post-breach cybersecurity privilege look like, and, and what do you think the value is? Sure, Andy. Thanks. Um, yeah, this is a, this is a burgeoning problem, uh, as you rightly as you rightly point out. So, uh, you know, the attorney-client privilege is the relationship is a privilege, and by let me start at the beginning. So, by privilege, what I mean is uh, a decision uh, that certain information. Uh, if it is privileged, if it's deemed to be privileged, is not available to your opponents in litigation, uh, to government investigators, uh, and and principally cannot be used in court. So it's a really an evidentiary privilege. It, it takes certain information out of the realm of evidence that can be used uh, against a party uh, if that party's information is privileged. So the attorney-client privilege, and, and we have these privileges in a number of places. There's the priest-pentinent privilege. Uh, there's the marital privileges between spouses. Uh, there's a psychotherapist privilege. Um, things you tell your psychotherapist can't be used. So there are, there are various types of privileges. Uh, the decision having been made uh, that um, uh, some things are not going to be available as evidence. 
which is not the usual not the usual way of the world, right? When you're in litigation, the other side gets to ask you questions and you got to turn it over. The government gets to ask you questions if they're investigating you and you have to turn it over. Uh, uh, this is a uh, this is what the lawyers would call a derogation from the standard uh, way of approaching things. So uh, the attorney-client privilege is it covers um, uh, facts or other things that. Uh, are given to an attorney, are presented to an attorney in exchange for, in, in, in an effort to get legal advice, right? And this is something that this effort to get legal advice from an attorney is what's privileged. Uh, the attorney work product privilege, which is a little bit more prevalent in litigation sometimes, is, uh, is information generated by uh, counsel uh, and with, with uh, experts and others in order to prepare for litigation. So you can see how when there's a breach, uh, and you're right, uh, incidents response plans uh, almost always and should, in my opinion, immediately loop in the legal department and, and or outside counsel if you have a very small legal department. Sometimes if you have a big legal department, you bring in outside counsel as well. Um, because as you said, Andy, the fact of life is that when there's a breach, the next thing that happens is you're either being you're 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 either being sued, um, uh, and it's very reasonable to assume you're going to be sued, uh, and uh, you're being investigated. Or um, so usually both of these things happen at the same time. Uh, and as you can also imagine, uh, it's perfectly reasonable that a firm that decides what it must do is take a hard look at its systems and its decisions about its systems to understand why it was breached so it can fix those systems and the same thing won't happen to it again or something similar won't happen to it again. And it goes out and hires a forensic firm uh, to investigate what, what happened. The last thing they really want is to spend all that money on an investigatory firm and then have to turn over to the people who want to punish it further uh, by, by suing it or, or seeking large fines um, to turn over the roadmap of what happened to its opponents. Uh, that is a, that's another bad day, right? When you have to, when you realize that your own expert's going to be used against you. Right. So this is an effort. My little piece in Lawfare um, was an effort to get around this issue uh, by creating, get around this issue. And I should say in particular, Andy, because law firms are quite naturally telling their clients, listen, if you want to have an investigatory report or investigation of your breach, do the following things to make sure that it doesn't get turned over to your opponent. And some of the things they were recommending were things like, don't do a report at all. Don't, don't write down your conclusions. Or if you write down your conclusions, write them in a way that if they're turned over to someone else, it won't hurt you. Or separate your root cause analysis from your recommendations uh, uh, about how to fix things. And above all, don't share this information with anybody other than the lawyers. And all of those things, Andy, struck me as being very intelligent from a litigation perspective uh, and being very uh, uh, unintelligent, being very uh, uh, inefficient um, and, and, and debilitating from a cybersecurity perspective. You know, if you have a post-breach report, you want that that's good and it has an analysis of what went wrong and how to fix it, 
that needs to be shared at the very least with the board, with the senior officers, with all the folks responsible uh, in, in, the, in the CIO's office. It might need to be shared with folks who are doing research. It might need to be shared with folks who are investigating the crime and want to track down the bad guys. There's plenty of sharing that needs to be done to be efficient. And uh, the current situation where trying to fit post-breach materials, uh, the round, the, the, you know, the square peg of post-breach materials into the round hole of the attorney work product privilege or the attorney client privilege is resulting in bad cybersecurity decisions. So my, my little piece was trying to figure out how to get a square hole for a square peg and Congress needs to, to make that square hole in, in the form of a post-breach cybersecurity privilege, at least in my opinion. It, to me, that's a, it's, it's fascinating. A lot to unpack. So, so, so the, having responded to hundreds right, of, of breaches, especially when I was a, a consultant, you know, when I was working you know, in the Verizon's business unit, right? Um, and we were advising clients. And you know, a lot of times, you know, their IR plans don't, you know, they actually have in there, like, write a report, like it is part of their process. So I would imagine that if I was getting deposed, say, like by the FTC, you know, after a, a breach, you know, on behalf of somebody, right, that they would say, well, what's the process that you normally follow? And if you all of a sudden you deviate and say, we're not going to write a report this time, that's going to get called out in court, too. So you almost have to change your entire IR plan to have that strategy in place to what you're what you're describing. If am I wrong or well, the you know what people tend to do is this they have this two track method. So what they do is they write a report. Uh, they have internal folks write a report, um, uh, and then they hire big gun outside an outside firm, uh, usually via their lawyers, to write a second report, right? And the, the first report that's done internally is the one that gets turned over. And that first report um, may be uh, a little less comprehensive, may be a little bit more uh, cut and dried, may be not as extensive. Uh, and the second report, the one that's going to be privileged or tried to be privileged it, from by the big gun outsiders is the one that gets, is the one that everyone pays attention to. And this is a you know, it's quite a natural thing to start out that way, sort of saying, oh, we'll have this two-track process. But in the end, as a number of cases have shown, and the, the case I talk about that really spurred me to write the piece, um, uh, uh, you know, was, was such a case, uh, the, the firm ends up saying, wow, we have this tremendous report from these outsiders. Let's use it for all the purposes we need to really use a cybersecurity report for, a post-breach report for. And all of a sudden, it's not privileged anymore. Right. So it just forces the question more and more into um, the report can be a report, Andy. It can be a pretty can be a pretty meager document if you're really scared about it ending up on the other side of the versus. So in terms of incentives, right, I feel like there's a paradigm shift in the thinking that you're proposing, which is. Cover your butt on one end. And then the other is, let's let's try to help the greater good, right? And th and that's, I think two things have to play out there. And I'd love to get your take on one is, you've got to have a corporate culture that says we want to be a part of the greater ecosystem and protect it, and you also have to have 
incentives or liability forgiveness or you know whatever you want to call it to enable that so because so companies don't hunker down and say no 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 we got to protect ourselves what's the what's that gray area look like in your mind in terms of being able to you know let companies manage their liability their their potential exposure to a data breach and also maintain being a good corporate citizen yeah no i think that's a really important question um and and some of the reaction about this is is under perfectly this idea is perfectly understandable about how um, my notion here is to try to protect companies who are doing bad things and 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 uh, uh, not do what's right and that's certainly not my idea. Um, so I take it for granted. I think that you do too. That we're you know unless there's a big uh, sea change post-breach litigation and investigations is going to be the way of the world, right? So there, you, you, you have the unfortunate uh, happenstance of being breached. You know that uh, in addition to whatever the real losses you're going to face from um, losing customers, losing information, losing, you know, losing your, your brand hit, you're going to have this follow-on of um, uh, fines and and payouts and at the very least paying lawyers boku bucks uh, to defend you. So that's a given in my mind. The question is the one that you pose, which is, okay, how do you in that world, in that world in which the natural reaction of a company that feels put upon, uh, beleaguered, um, no company wants to get breached, right? Uh, and um, is, is, uh, quite natural for them not to want to add to the uh, fuel to the fire. So the idea I think is important is how do you use the privilege as one method of encouraging behavior and the behavior we want to encourage is that uh, full internal investigation and is that ability to use that information in a way that will apply to the greater good because now, you know, I recognize that the privilege takes away something from society, right? It takes away that information that would otherwise be used in those litigations and those, those investigations. So I think the idea is one that mixes carrots and sticks, right? It's, it's uh, the, the, the greater good here is recognizing that um, full investigations by these firms will contribute overall to cybersecurity in the country. And my idea also suggests that in order to get the benefit of this privilege, perversely or, or, or somewhat inconsistently, you have to share the information. So I would propose setting up these um, cybersecurity safety organizations um, and existing ISACs and ISAOs could be used for this purpose. Um, as clearinghouses, right? You know, right now, if you give information to an ISAC or an ISAO, you can give it anonymously if you're a member and, and other people can look at it. But if, the, if, 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 if someone gives the ISAC or the ISAO a subpoena, right? right. They're going to have to turn over that information. They very clearly tell you that, it's, that, that giving them the information doesn't protect it in the sense of uh, protect it against uh, a process of some sort. This would change that. You, know, you would have to forcibly share. You would have to. Um, you would have to share uh, this information uh, with designated 
uh, entities or for designated purposes like research or otherwise in order to get the benefit of the privilege. So this is further encouragement. You, 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 you get the encouragement of knowing that if you do a full report internally, it's not going to be used against you. But the public benefit is you have to share it with others who may find useful ways of avoiding their own cybersecurity problem based on your problem, right? It doesn't have to be, it could be anonymous. It doesn't have to have your name on it to be shared. But if a researcher wants to be able to get it from the ISAC or the ISAC, they can. Uh, if, 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 the, if a criminal investigation of the bad guys needs it, they can get it. So it sets up a structure of protecting the information in certain circumstances, but requiring its disclosure in other circumstances in controlled ways. Uh, and I think that that's the balance. And by the way, uh, the underlying information, the logs, the, you know, all that, all the, 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 the attack vectors, all the stuff that the, the expert looked at in order to reach their conclusions that the thing that's protected, those, that underlying information is not protected. So if a plaintiff's lawyer wants to go after you and, and wants all the basic information, all the building block information, they can still get it and they can hire their own expert and they can go after you hammer and tong that way. All this does is say that you don't have to provide your adversary with uh, a roadmap uh, of, your own, of your own conclusions. Um, so it, it tries to thread the needle a little bit by adding to the public good in a couple of ways and maintaining the ability of the litigation to go forward uh, in another way. So, so how has this been received amongst, you know, like the, the legal community and maybe even the regulatory environment? You know, have you had any, any feedback from folks? Yeah, I am. I'm, I'm sort of doing a little bit of a campaign on my own. It's very different than doing one when I was at Verizon where, <laughs> right. you know, miraculously you had a lot more resources. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I've been in touch with um, uh, folks in, the, uh, uh, in, in all sorts of different worlds. Uh, I've had some contact on the Hill with people I know uh, who are interested in the idea, um, uh, maybe as part of uh, discussing this uh, idea of having mandatory reporting of incidents, you know, sort of the new NTSB idea. I have my own, we can talk about that. I have my own concerns about mandatory incident reporting, but maybe this is part of that. I've talked to a number of the uh, good government groups uh, who, are, who are supportive. Uh, I've talked to, um, uh, certainly the defense bar thinks it's a great idea because they're spending all this time and they know the people who are doing cybersecurity know that their recommendations are not um, are, are protecting the client on one front and making it more difficult to use those reports on the other front. So they're keenly aware of the need for this. Um, so you know, I've just started, but this the the idea seems to be catching uh, mostly favorable reviews. I'm certain that plaintiff's lawyers won't like it, um, and I understand that um, perfectly well. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, I, I appeal to all the listeners of, of, of Task Force 7 Radio, if you're interested <laughs> in, in setting up a discussion about this, I'd be more than happy to discuss it with you or your teams or whoever to try to garner more support for this. I'm on a little bit of a mission. It's an interesting concept, Randy. I mean, I got 
I mean, I, tons of stuff we could talk about at the break too, because we won't be able to cover everything in one show. But uh, it, does, do you think that this starts to head down like the national data breach law? Well, you know, it's interesting. It, it, it I, I it, there's a lot of good from a notion. If, if what you're talking about, Andy, is like a, a, a finally having a national data breach reporting law, yeah, uh, I think it makes a it makes a lot of sense to have that. If what it does is actually give people who are breached one standard to live by, my concern, of course, is that that a national data breach law, the way these things get in, in, enacted really doesn't do that, right? It, it, sets, it, it sets a floor, not a ceiling. So you might well have this national data breach law and then you'll have still have 30 or 40 state different state laws because they require something slightly different. Um, having a single uniform rule will take a lot of time and effort out of uh, reporting breaches, right? Um, but right now we have 50 reporting uh, obligations. It's not like meaningful breaches don't get reported. Um, so uh, I, I do think that there's going to be more and more effort to have legislation. Um, um, but, uh, you know, my own view is that we need to start the process of of, of looking for the low-hanging fruit from a legislative perspective. Too many good ideas get, get dissed in Washington because they don't, quote, solve the problem, close quote. You're not going to solve cybersecurity with one miraculous law. Um, you need to take, there's lots of low-hanging fruit that we need to take to get companies uh, to um, practice better cyber hygiene mixtures of carrots and sticks, mixtures of incentives and disincentives to get them to move on this very complicated subject and spend money on it, this complicated subject. Um, and uh, thinking that you're going to have one law uh, and then running into the problem of, oh, it, it still leaves X, Y, and Z out, so it might as well not pass it. We need to start, we need to start thinking about legislative singles and doubles, uh, I think, instead of home runs. And uh, you know, a national data breach law that actually superseded all 50 state laws. So you only had one standard to worry about. That would be a benefit. Right. Adding a 51st standard because there's a national standard as well as 50 state standards. That doesn't make any sense to me. Yeah. And I, I love the baseball reference now that we're turning into spring here. I love it. I can't wait to get to a game live again. But uh, all right, folks, we've got to take another short break to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, co-chair of the NYU Center for Cybersecurity, Mr. Randy Milch. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. As CISOs manage known malware attacks, they also contend with the unknown unknowns. With 24-7 Hacker Innovation, where do CISOs place their next security investment bet? Find the answer with Signet. 
with forums and public and private partnership dinners in Toronto, London, Singapore, Tokyo, and across the U.S., Synet is a mission-focused, purpose-driven global community, advancing the next generation of cybersecurity solutions. As an entrepreneurial ecosystem super connector, Synet brings innovators, top cybersecurity professionals, solution providers, investors, and government executives into a collaborative alliance. Join Synet's global community to empower your organization and the industry to defeat hackers with cybersecurity's next generation of innovation. Learn more at security-innovation.org or Google Synet, S-I-N-E-T. In today's interconnected world, digital transformation is taking us on a journey towards exciting new ways to work, live, and communicate. In business, staying out in front of the competition means pushing the boundaries of the status quo and exploring the possibilities of the future. However, pushing forward into this fast-changing digital landscape brings a new level of uncertainty and risk that must be measured, understood, and managed. By delivering state-of-the-art cyber risk analytics, X-Analytics is setting the standard to bring business clarity to the complex cyber threats organizations face each and every day. When it comes to understanding your financial exposure to cyber risk, trust what the global cyber insurance industry and Fortune 500 companies trust. Trust X-Analytics to guide you through the uncertainty into cyber risk clarity. For more information about X-Analytics, visit our website today at x-analytics.com. That's x-analytics.com. X-Analytics, setting the standard in the enterprise cyber risk management. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with co-chair of the NYU Center for Cybersecurity, Mr. Randy Milch. So, Randy, I loved, I loved our conversation last segment, and I, I did want to follow up with you on, you know, your comment around incentivizing companies. Like, what, what do you think it would take, you know, how, do you, how would you advise companies to be incentivized to invest in cybersecurity? You know, it's a, it's, it's a great and complicated question, Andy. It's, First, first, the way I think about it is, remember, we, we've got thousands of different companies, right, in the, in the country, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, if you include all the small businesses. And you have to think about businesses from large to small, because they all have different needs, they all have different mindsets, they all have different uh, 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 available cash, they all have different sizes of problems, although as we all know, uh, the way things are linked together these days, 
you the the small company can be the gateway for a large company's disaster. So we're all interconnected now and figuring out how to incentivize companies is really complicated because we need multiple different types of incentives for companies, right? Um, listen, my view of, the, of it is fundamentally companies which are really just people and the people in those companies they want to do the right thing. They want to do the right thing by their customers. They want to do the right thing by their company. They want to do the right thing by the world at large. They're, they're not evil. Uh, and, and finding ways to let that natural proclivity come through is really important. It could be insurance for small companies, right? And, and, and saying, listen, we'll give you cheap cyber insurance, but you have to do the following 10 things, right? It could be safe harbors. It could be um, it could be uh, tax incentives. It, there's lots of ways to incentivize companies. Um, and the method we have now, which is basically uh, shame them, uh, have, uh, have, have, have ambitious prosecutors go after them uh, or attorneys general who want to be, who want the next elective post uh, or have uh, folks, you know, blaring on the headlines uh, uh, and plaintiff's lawyers, I don't think those are the best ways to incentivize companies. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate your perspective there. So listen, Rand, you've, when my time at Verizon, I really valued my time there working, you know, under your leadership and you, you were very, you created an environment where people were able to belong and grow and you developed some amazing leaders there that have on, obviously gone on to take over your former role and continue to grow and move on. Like, what was the key to your success in terms of, you know, developing the next generation of, of cybersecurity talent, legal talent? Um, and what advice would you give uh, up and coming executives well, first off, Andy, thanks for the kind words. I appreciate you saying that. Um, it, I attribute it mostly to the talents of the folks who who I was lucky enough to have to work with. Um, I, I think it's critical to recognize how the cybersecurity landscape has changed a little bit from the back in the days when we were we were piecing this together much more uh, on the fly. There's a lot more information and there's a lot more learning available now than there was uh, back then. Um, uh, I think that uh, in order to grow your talent, it's, it's first off, it's a, it's, it's a significant part of the job. Uh, you have to be thinking about uh, the talent at all levels of your organization. And I used to say that, I mean, I really do think that I spent between a quarter and a third of my time um, uh, at Verizon worrying about the people who were working there and how to ensure that they were um, prepared uh, and uh, uh, available uh, to take on more responsibility. Uh, and part of that was moving people around uh, and into different slots. It was encouraging them not to be afraid to go into a place where they didn't feel like they already knew how to do the job uh, and to encourage them to learn on that job. The flip side of that, Andy, is that if you're in a company uh, and you're offered some uh, uh, role that you don't feel 100% ready for, you got to take it, right? You got to not let that be the thing that stops you. Um, uh, being willing to take a risk uh, is uh, personally for your for your for your career uh, is same. It's the same idea as a company, right? A company doesn't make any money if it doesn't take any risks. 
that's, that's where the profits are. And the same thing is true in your career. You got to be willing to take a risk. You got to be willing to step into roles you're not comfortable with. Uh, and you have to be, the, it's, it's incumbent on the boss to recognize that, to provide the assistance, to get you up to speed, to have a little uh, uh, forbearance when you screw up. Because listen, judgment in my mind is uh, screwing up enough and just not doing it twice. Uh, not doing the same mistake twice. So uh, it's a lot of work. And if, if senior managers and bosses at all levels are willing to invest in the talent around them with the time, uh, with thinking through what makes that person is going to make that person a more valuable person, then I think you'll find that in cybersecurity, uh, as with every other part of the company, uh, there are opportunities um, and it may not ever be a straight line, um, but you have to be willing to take those risks and zig and zag a little bit in order to find the way forward. So NYU Center for Cybersecurity, what's next for you there? Where, where, what's, what's down the, on, you know, over the horizon for, for the center? Well, you know, the center is deeply involved uh, in, as I said, in trying to bring together uh, uh, the talents of the Tannen School of Engineering uh, at NYU and the, and, the, and, the, and the NYU School of Law. And we're the principal um, uh, participants, although we do have wonderful interactions with the Stern Business School and uh, other schools at NYU to sort of round out um, our efforts. Uh, but, um, you know, the, the fight to come up with a interdisciplinary workforce is, is, is a long one. You know, if you look at the, the, at the hundreds of thousands and potentially millions of cybersecurity jobs that are open, uh, and if you look at something like the, like the, national, uh, 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 the National Initiative for Cybersecurity Education, NICE, the NIST effort there, you know, uh, people need to know, techni technologists need to know about law and policy and Law and policy people need to know about technology. And so our efforts to continue to educate um, uh, law students, uh, engineering students, uh, and even professional level folks in our Master of Science in Cybersecurity Risk and Strategy program for, for professionals, all those efforts are to grow an interdisciplinary workforce. Uh, it's a, it's it, in the scheme, in the great ocean of of, uh, of, of cybersecurity workers, it's but a few drops, but it's the effort that we're trying to put together uh, to spread that interdisciplinary education. And I, I think that for the foreseeable future, that's what we'll be doing. It um, uh, was spending a lot of time and effort on that. Um, you know, we, we, have, we have panels and convenings and we produce scholarship, uh, but all of that uh, strikes potentially fewer, fewer folks and, uh, and, and short-lived in some way, you know, you do a panel and it's, and other than the fact that the internet never dies, it's gone. Um, but hopefully you educate some folks, um, they're going to have 30 years in front of them of making better cybersecurity decisions. So uh, that's, that's really our effort. Yeah, it's fantastic. I love what you're doing at the center. Uh, let me know how I can contribute in any way. Um, and I really appreciate you coming on the show. 
Uh, Andy, it's been a real pleasure. Um, and uh, it, thanks for introducing me to Task Force 7 Radio and, and, and to all your, all your listeners out there. I say keep on fighting the good cybersecurity fight. We appreciate it. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. But before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to get a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.